The trend over the last few years has been to call those sensitive spirits on the left snowflakes. We've been mocked for creating safe spaces on college campuses. We've been ridiculed for adding trigger warnings that alert people to content they might find traumatic. We get blamed for being too politically correct, which usually means inclusive. And now the existence of cancel culture is apparently entirely our fault. All of this, of course, escalated dangerously in the interminable years since Donald first announced his run for the Republican nomination in 2015. But something else started happening, too. At the same time the right was criticizing us for being wimps, they were becoming mired in a pathetic mix of grievance and projection. Republicans are bewildered that they can't be openly racist, homophobic, or misogynistic without paying a price. They're outraged that the estate of Dr. Seuss pulled some of his books from circulation because they contained racist images. They were apoplectic with a fictional six-foot yellow bird because he, the fictional bird, had the audacity to encourage people, including children, to get vaccinated. They freaked out when a bakery sold gingerbread people instead of gingerbread men, and when Hasbro made its potatoes gender neutral, which honestly is always how I prefer my potatoes. And most recently, Tucker Carlson, whom I call fish sticks, expressed horror because M&Ms were given new footwear, which rendered the candy-coated chocolates sexually undesirable. To all of which I say, with deep sincerity, fuck your feelings. This week, I'm um, thrilled is definitely a word. Um, honored is definitely a word, but also prescient <laughs> to have as my guest, Fiona Hill, whom a lot of you know from her uh, amazing testimony in front of Congress in 2020, and most recently for her incredible book, which we're going to talk a lot about, There's Nothing For You Here, um, which resonated with me on so many levels. And I would imagine uh, for those of you who read it, and if you haven't read it, please do. It's extraordinary. Uh, Fiona, welcome. And thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much, Mary, for having me. It's a pleasure. You know, I, uh, I've wanted to talk to you for a long time, and then I got a podcast and I had a reason to ask. Um, so, But when I asked you, things were a little, I don't know if calm is the right word, because things are never calm. But in terms of your area of expertise, they were a little calmer. So you must be a little busy right now with what's going on in Ukraine. Well, yes, to say the least. I mean, I'm probably like everybody else, pretty preoccupied with this. I mean, we don't know where things are heading. As we're speaking now, um, Vladimir Putin has moved an enormous amount of uh, troops uh, to all of the borders of Ukraine, north and Belarus, uh, to the Russian-Ukrainian border from the south to the territory that they annexed already from Ukraine in Crimea. And everybody's just wondering, is he going to move? And there's a lot of deliberation in Europe um, as well about whether the United States might be this time around overreacting. Uh, because, you know, in the past, of course, Vladimir Putin has moved uh, against Ukraine before, annexing Crimea. Uh, they've intervened in Syria. You know, Putin's done a lot. I mean, back in 2008, he uh, also invaded Georgia 
And each time we were much more muted in our reaction, not quite sure, you know, is this the harbinger of other things to come or is this just you know, the result of some spat he's having in a, in a particular time, of, you know, back in 2008, the president of uh, Georgia, Mikhail Saakashvili, or, you know, is there some kind of narrow issue here that uh, this is all about? Can this be easily resolved? But this time, uh, you know, the Euro- some of the Europeans are wondering if the US is, you know, overreacting of not doing so much before and whether we're kind of setting ourselves off into this escalatory dynamic and of course, you know, our government is thinking, whoa, hang on, there's some game changes here. They're doing things that they haven't done before in the past. And, you know, really, this time it looks like they mean business. Uh, they're going to invade Ukraine. It's just a matter of uh, when exactly and what the trigger is. And we've got to get ourselves ready. So we're in the kind of confrontation that we haven't had since really the 1980s when we had a standoff. I mean, you and I, I think, are roughly the same age, so we'll remember this. You know, in the 1980s, 1983, 1984, of uh, missiles being placed in Europe by the US and uh, the Soviet Union. And this was the period of the campaign for nuclear disarmament and all the peace marches all the way kind of across Europe because we thought we were right on the verge of some kind of nuclear confrontation. And here we kind of go again is the sort of feeling right now. Yeah, it definitely, in, in in many ways, feels like deja vu all over again, uh, certainly in this context and, and in a political t- context, which I, I want to talk to you about later. Um, but right now, it, it doesn't really feel like we we won the Cold War. Uh, it just feels like it's been a really long detente. Uh, do you think that's a good way to look at the way things have unfolded in the last few years? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that's a great way of looking at it. And uh, Vladimir Putin would uh, even go further and say, no, you didn't win the um, Cold War. You just took advantage of the fact that we were weak for a while and now we're not. You know, relatively speaking, we're back. We're stronger. You look weak. You know, you look like we did, you know, in that period after the collapse of the Soviet Union 30 years ago. And now it's our turn to turn the tables on you and, you know, basically say, look, we're not happy with how things sorted themselves out at the end of the Cold War. We didn't like the fact that we got pushed back. This is Russia you know, out of Eastern Europe, uh, you know, NATO expanded, the United States was dominant, and we want a redo. You know, so Putin is basically saying, yeah, that was not the end of anything. That was just an interregnum, a, a, as you said, a detente or a, a short period, uh, a blip, uh, if you will, you know, in, in events. And we still need to get this sorted out. So it's almost kind of as if we're, uh, you know, kind of two old prize fighters who've, you know, been having, you know, kind of bout with each other. And we've both been brought out of retirement for one last bout to resolve everything that, you know, didn't get resolved before. It's like Rocky, what, one, two, three or something, you know, like this we're back to it again or Bruce Willis and Die Hard yet again you know it's kind of it seems to be like a rerun of you know all of the kinds of things we've had in the past so I think that's why it's so confounding for people because in the US we're saying what what do you yeah. mean we're back in this geopolitical you know stuff of the Cold War but the Cold War's gone you know we moved on we worried about China we've got all these other things why are we doing this again well, America never learns. We always move on from things prematurely, which is also another conversation. But it also feels like the horror movie in which the bad guy never dies. You know, you think you've got right. him. And then next thing you know, he's up and uh, wreaking havoc again. So I, while you were talking, I was thinking about how um, this, is, this is a long-term strategy, uh, you know, Putin definitely knows what he's doing when it comes to manipulating uh, geopolitics. And it didn't, It certainly didn't start with the 2016 election, but I think that's where he made his biggest play. And it seems to me like this is, this is just uh, another um, extension 
of that gambit. Does does that seem reasonable uh, that because of how weakened we've become uh, over the years of the last administration, because the big lie continues to be perpetuated, because the January 6th insurrection, as far as I'm concerned, may still have been successful, as weird as it may be to put it that way. Do you think that's at play here, that perception sure. of our weakness? Yeah, exactly, because he does sense that weakness. Um, uh, and he sees that we're so... Polarize. In fact, polarize isn't even really the word, isn't it? Because that suggests yeah. that we've got like two different, you know, kind of sides to everything. In fact, we're in a multifaceted uh, crisis. We've got so many factions, so much friction uh, that's there in the political system. They leapt into that, you know, as you said, in 2016, they being the um, Russian security services at the direction, you know, we're pretty confident here of uh, Vladimir Putin to stir things up. It wasn't like they invented the problems, but they certainly added fuel to the flames of uh, all kinds of conflicts that were brewing uh, domestically for us. And now, um, with so many questions being asked about the future of American democracy, the future of the country, uh, you know, are we have we become ungovernable? Uh, this, in many respects, seems like a great time to act because we're not capable of mounting a collective defence. And what I mean by that is, of course, we can uh, you know make common cause with our allies to push back, but internally in the United States right now, I mean, Biden's just assailed on all sides. I mean, it wouldn't matter who the president is right now. We've got so much going on that no one person can bind everything together. And we, and if we can't get our act together domestically in support of our foreign policy, then you know we're going to have a really hard time, you know, pulling everyone else together. Unless Putin does something, you know, completely outrageous. And this gets back again to some of the debates going on in Europe. They're not really quite sure what's happening. But if, you know, uh, Vladimir Putin really does move in and, you know, full force into Ukraine, then that will be one of those clarifying moments. But I just don't know whether it will be for our domestic politics. I think Putin bets it won't be. Because you've got Joe Biden basically sailed by everybody, including in his own party at all times and everything. I mean, the guy can't move for, without being criticised. Yeah. And Putin... I mean, he's a unitary actor. Nobody does that. I mean, where's his press criticising him? Where's yeah. the members of his own party? He doesn't have one. You know, kind of where's everybody else going out there saying, how did you say that? Oh, my God, you just made a mistake in something you said. And, you know, kind of, for him, this is easy. I mean, it's not completely easy, but basically mm -hmm. he has free room of manoeuvre and we absolutely don't at this moment. Yeah, and it is, it is incredible to realize that part of that is we've got um, commentators with millions of followers uh, asking this question with a straight face. Why is it so bad to be allies with Russia? Like, why are, why are we allies with Ukraine? <laughs> um, which is confusing to a lot of people. And, uh, you know, Democratic Congress people have been getting calls asking, you know, parroting that, not people not understanding, like, why, why Russia isn't uh, an, an ally of ours? Like, why are we being so tough on Russia? Which just, uh, I guess, makes it clear the effectiveness of the propaganda that's been spread, starting with uh, Donald's totally revamping the Republican Party platform to be more pro-Russia uh, than it had ever been. So what is that shift? Because I, I'd say probably half of the Republicans in Congress um, would not support the administration if Russia became aggressive in Ukraine. They would use it 
as an even uh, another polarizing moment, another moment of divisiveness. Is that completely because of Donald? I, I mean, I, that seems uh, hard to to fathom. But on the other hand, I don't recall that this was an issue before he got into the Oval Office. Well, I think it's been exacerbated. But if we look back to 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea, we had very much of the same sort of debate. You know, why are we so concerned about Ukraine? Uh, Ukraine was actually at that point applying not to join NATO, but to join the European Union in Mm -hmm. the form of an association agreement, so sort of European light. And the Russians tried to push back and get them to... uh, pull back. There was a backlash in Ukraine at the popular level, been a revolution, the, we call it Euromaidan, in, in other words, on the Maidan, the independent square of Ukraine, all these people are massed in protest in, uh, you know, European Union flags, there wasn't American <laughs> flags being flown there alongside of Ukrainian flags. And then uh, you had uh, the Russians moving in after a whole kind of massive political crisis there to annex uh, Crimea. And that really, you know, kind of wasn't anything to do with the United States. And, of course, an awful lot of people at the same time, too, were pushing back in the same frame about, well, look, Ukraine's got nothing to do with us. That didn't have anything to do with us. We should be much more cautious. But there's a a different way of looking about this. We keep looking at it all through our own lens. And just to be very clear, there is not really a big constituency in Russia right now arguing in favour of, um, uh, you know, basically a close reliance with the United States. In fact, all of Russian propaganda internally is focused uh, on the United States and NATO as the aggressors. You know, basically saying the whole of the last 30 years, it's not just that we might have been rather hubristic in the way that we were kind of thinking that peace would break out all over the place, that we might have a, you know, good relationship and a strategic partnership, but that we have been, the United States, on a track to uh, basically constrain Russia, keep Russia down, push Russia away, for the whole of the 30 years. Not that we might have all made mistakes in the approach to our relationship. And now the the majority of Russians in polling, you know, believe that we are the, uh, the United States aggressor and that we want Ukraine. So they're not hearing these voices of people saying, oh, you know, Ukraine, nothing to do with us. They're actually seeing a United States that's on some sort of rapacious drive to take back in, you know, parts of Europe and push Russia away, which of course is not what's happening in um, our discourse at all. But one thing is that we're looking at all of this the wrong way as well because Ukraine is uh, basically an independent country that's been recognised for 30 years. And if Russia just basically goes in there and invades and seizes more territory or overturns the government and you know puts the country um, under occupation, bringing it back into Russia again, that will be a huge violation of international affairs. Now, of course, the Russians would say, ha-ha, but right, OK, United States, that's what you did. You know, you went into Iraq in 2003. You went into Afghanistan, you know, around the same sort of time. You do this all the time about basically um, overturning uh, countries and regimes. I mean, the argument like, should be, well, look, I mean, just because we're a bad actor doesn't make it, you know, two wrongs don't make a right, right? You know? yeah, <laughs> so well. you think we're a bad actor, why are you doing this to Ukraine? What's that got to do with us? So, I mean, I think we need to internationalise this, get it out there, get it out of our own domestic debate, because it's not just all about us, and just put it out there. This would set a terrible precedent around the world. It would make every everybody more unstable because it means that any country can basically get away with it if there's no pushback. So it's not about US-Russian relations per se, although obviously it is in this context, Mm. but it's just really about how you think about the international system. And then the other thing is, of course, we have been trying for years to try to figure out a better relationship with Russia. We could still do that. It's going to take some time. It's going to be pretty hard. But that shouldn't be tied into this whole thing about, you know, Ukraine getting carved up or not. Yeah, and you mentioned 
something else America is terrible at besides hypocrisy. Uh, actually, we're pretty good at hypocrisy. What we're bad at is thinking about things in the context of the, the world. Right. <laughs> you know, thinking outside of ourselves, because that would be a way to help people understand the significance of this, uh, the degree to which we should be involved, and perhaps more importantly, the degree to which we need to um, advocate for a more united international response. Um, but has the the four years of the last administration, uh, which seemed to do everything in its power to weaken the Western alliance, is that still um, causing problems for us? Sure, and I think it does it in many different ways. I mean, I noticed that uh, former President Trump had a statement basically saying, well, you know, under the Trump administration, this wouldn't have happened. This, I suppose, being President Putin preparing for invasion of Ukraine. But under you know, President Trump, what happened? It was the privatization of Ukraine, a, a phone call, you know, to yeah. President Zelensky of Ukraine saying, hey, do me a favour, or do us a favour, will you? Uh, you know, there was plenty of stuff related to Ukraine going on, but it was in, let's just say, not in the foreign policy, national security perspective, but in the context of our domestic politics. And we need to get Russia right. and Ukraine out of our domestic politics and back where they belong, which is out there in, you know, the larger world of foreign policy. And I think partly... I think the Russians are reacting to what was business most unusual under the previous administration to a kind of return to business as usual under the Biden administration where Ukraine goes back out of our domestic politics. And of course, you know, the action of Trump's phone call was directed against Biden, as we're all we're pretty well aware. And mm -hmm. he wanted to, of course, probably put a lot of distance, Biden that is, you know, between him and what had happened there and put Ukraine back out there as a national security issue, talking about a reaffirmation of American, not just private presidential interests, but of American interest in Ukraine. And, you know, putting it back onto that kind of realm of a foreign policy issue. And I think the Russians reacted to that. They were like, hang on a second, we kind of liked it when it was chaos. And there was no chance of Ukraine getting into NATO. I can't say that they would have liked it that President Trump was trying to privatise that's kind of Putin's thing for Ukraine. It's my object, not your object. Mm -hmm. But I think they don't like at all this idea that Ukraine is out there because they see Ukraine as part of their sphere of influence. Putin's talked for years about Ukraine being Russia's, you know, the kind of private interest of Russia in Ukraine, wanting it back in a sphere of influence and don't want the United States or NATO or any other European uh, country having close relations with Ukraine. And pretty much where they are now is throwing down the gauntlet you know, drawing the red line and basically saying, we're going to go in, we're going to get rid of uh, the current regime. Uh, it won't be do us a favour anymore, but we're going to show you who's who, who's the boss here. And, you know, basically daring us uh, to uh, engage with them on this. I mean, I think that honestly that they, you know, they're really looking here for its gunboat diplomacy, getting us to the negotiation table. But the thing with Putin is that he is not somebody who wants to be caught out in a bluff. And that's the kind of dangerous situation we get ourselves into, you know, where we get into an escalatory pattern. And it's kind of what the Russians want, because Putin's whole idea is you escalate, you get it as the maximal pressure and tension. He said this publicly. And then you try to get the other side to blink. And then that's kind of you de-escalate after that. When you've got what you want, you get them, you know, kind of basically all softened up to uh, basically hand you on a platter the uh, you know the issue the uh, you know the country or whatever it is that you're uh, basically gunning for. I mean that kind of maximalist diplomacy. I think you know was quite familiar, you know, to yeah. many people when you, you know, look at this and what he's doing is quite obvious. Yeah, and it, you write about this at length about his uh, a few years ago his his ability to uh, gauge what was happening in this country 
and not to create fissures, but to put pressure upon them um, and then get in, in, as you said, either to cast a a cloud over whoever came into the Oval Office. Uh, Hillary Clinton would have been kneecapped from the very start. Absolutely. Um, And uh, of course, Donald would have would not have let that go. Uh, unfortunately, though, he got into the Oval Office, and it, yes, there was there was and continues to be a cloud over that. But um, more to the point, this conversation, Putin understood how easily manipulable he was. Um, you know, that's right. So he went from exploiting America's weakness to exploiting Donald's many many weaknesses, uh, and. Now, as you say, we find ourselves at the opposite end of the spectrum. You know, he's not going to be able to play Joe Biden in the same way. So he's going to have to push him in an equally uh, extreme but opposite reaction um, over being overly aggressive to um, a purported threat, which, as you said, some people are already think that we're overreacting. Right. And I mean, I think what uh, Putin is trying to do is to, again, consolidate this idea uh, and entrench this idea that already some people have uh, picked up on, that the United States is the aggressor and this is all the United States' fault. So the idea that we are overreacting, that we are escalating the situation, and therefore we're you know, proving to Putin, Putin's point, that we're the aggressors and this is all our fault. So it's a kind of you know turning things all around on themselves over and over and over again. And you know the fact that people are coming forward and pushing Putin's line is already a huge success. And it's also makes it extraordinarily difficult to actually negotiate in good faith some of the things that, you know, actually are pretty sensible. I mean, we we probably do want to have a renewed European security uh, arrangement. Uh, You know, I mean, that can take all kinds of forms and discussions and then resolutions, uh, agreements, treaties even on conventional nuclear arms, for example, cyber. You know, there's all kinds of things that we really ought to be talking about, but you can't in this kind of atmosphere. I mean, they've made it impossible. And, and the whole goal of Putin is to having everyone to attack the United States and to attack Biden. And it doesn't matter who's president, you know, in, in uh, many respects. It was whoever would be in here now. But I do think that there is something about Biden uh, which uh, has really focus Putin on this particular moment. It's because Biden actually really understands Russia, understands Putin, because he's been there for such a long time as um, Senate Foreign Relations uh, Committee, Vice President and now President. Putin doesn't have to explain anything to him. Right. That you could see from, you know, in the interactions I've had with the Russians and, you know, sitting in meetings, you know, with Putin, Putin's just getting so frustrated with dealing with people who he feels like he has to start again. You know, from his point of view, I mean, Russians never use a goldfish analogy, but, you know, we in the US have, you know, the, the, the attention span of a goldfish, you know, and a memory, you know, a short term memory, you know, one minute, you know, we're thinking about something, we've forgotten it because our political system just changes over and changes over. And the Russians have to start again. Putin's been there for 21, 22 years. And he just keeps having to explain himself. And with Biden, Biden knows what NATO is. Biden is steeped in the transatlantic alliance. Biden knows the history of the Cold War. You know, hell, Biden, you know, knows back, you know, the history going back, you know, forever. You know, and he's kind of been there. I think he was at the Constitutional Convention. Exactly. And Putin basically sees that and actually says, well, this actually is someone that I can do business with. If I put enough pressure on here, I won't have to explain myself to this guy. And he probably wants to get this all in before we move off to the next issue that's going to, you know, affect our attention 
election, uh, the midterms, and then, you know, the kind of the presidential election. And, you know, Putin doesn't have to worry about the same things we do, but he has to get, try to force us to pay attention to him for a sufficient amount of time that he can actually get some results. So that's his motivation right now. Yeah, uh, I I wonder, you were talking about the fact that our there's so much turnover in American politics that it, it does make it difficult to create any kinds of consistency over time. Um, but that's why institutional memory is so important. And I, I've often thought that one of the most damaging things about the last administration was the destruction of institutional memory, particularly in uh, the Department of State. Uh, do, do you think that's a fair thing to say? Oh, absolutely. And it wasn't just the Department of State. I mean, we're talking about foreign oh, no. policy, but we could have, you know, as, as you well know, we could have touched on any, you know, particular issue. We've just seen, you know, kind of a, like a massacre uh, in many respects of public servants and the whole idea of public service turned on its head. You know, I, I often try when I'm explaining to people about, you know, the value of public service and, you know, having been called myself, you know, deep state stiff by, you know, somebody who's related to you, <laughs> albeit with a nice accent, or an uh, 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 um, unelected, you know, deep state bureaucratic coup plotter. That's a bit of a mouthful by, you know, some people as well. <laughs> you know, I think thing. you should get that on a bumper sticker. <laughs> yeah, that one's a bit long, you know, yeah. compress it a bit. Um, the, uh, you know, the whole point is that, yeah, I mean, elections are extraordinarily important for political jobs, but you don't get on a plane by electing the pilot. I mean, was the last time you stood on the tarmac, you know, at kind of LaGuardia, you know, going, hey, you look like a good, yeah, you look like a central class, you look like a good, um, you know, fly the plane, yeah, we all elect you. I mean, you basically want people, you know, who know how to do things. There's lots of technical jobs in uh, the United States government, including in the uh, State Department, the people who, you know, tackle our treaties, we have an economics bureau, you know, who look at trade and other issues, it's not just the Department of Commerce or the, you know, the US. TR, the US Trade Representative, for example, there's all these kind of different functions that take part across the government. And you want people to be in those jobs for a you know, considerable period of time. You want that expertise. You don't want to have to always be paying hand over fist to the private sector to bring this on. And those kinds of jobs have got gutted, you know, all the decisions to move, you know, some departments all the way across the country, which would make sense if it was done, you know, in a, in a properly coordinated and thought through fashion, but not if it's done over a weekend, you know, for example, or all of the just hounding people out and saying you're just a bunch of partisan hacks and, you know, kind of negating all of the work that they've done. I mean, this is why our pandemic and so many other issues have dragged on for so long, because we've basically put uh, public servants, not just in the hot seat, but into this kind of position of somehow being enemies of the state, which is just bizarre. And politicized everything. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we started, we had to start thinking about things that we always took for granted. Um, one of one, the most obvious one for me was uh, how is it possible that somebody so incompetent who can't pass, a, couldn't pass a background check is allowed to have that job, but couldn't have any other job? You know that that was a that was a big one. Um, but also, why are certain decisions left up to political actors when, vis-a-vis -vis the pandemic, for example, doctors, epidemiologists should have been right. crafting the messaging and laying out the guidelines, uh, not not being forced to experience and ultimately succumb to political pressure because, as you say, these are public servants who are getting death threats simply because they didn't want American citizens to die. 
Exactly. Yeah, this this doesn't really doesn't make any sense. And, you know, from the outside, this gets back to, you know, where we start on foreign policy and about, you know, why is Putin uh, doing the things that he does? Because the United States has lost its position internationally because of this. People look at this and say, what, this is the United States? You know, in that whole period after World War Two, the United States was active through all of the technical assistance and all of the dedicated, you know, public service and government officials in helping rebuild Europe and helping rebuild other war-torn societies around the world. We have the US Agency for International Development and the World Bank's based here and the International Monetary Fund. And there were people fanning out, Americans working with others to, you know, help put the world back on its feet again. People would come to the United States to sort of study our democratic institutions. I worked, you know, when I first came to the US at the Kennedy School at Harvard in a program called Strengthening Democratic Institutions because people looked to the United States for how, you know, we constructed political parties and how we conducted elections. They were always seen as the epitome of free and fair. You know, we had international uh, electoral uh, monitoring and our party um, programs, foundations, uh, NDI, the National Democratic Institute, IRI, the International Republican Institute, they went around the world, you know, helping people improve and strengthen their democracy. And then people look at us, they look at January 6th, look what happened over the last four years, and they say, oh, gosh, what happened? And, And that really has damaged us. When we have polling now from Pew and other organisations, the United States um, ratings, so to speak, you know, kind of how people think of us globally are pretty low, abysmally so. As well, it should be. I, I, I'd like to think that it's going to improve uh, under Biden. But as you mentioned earlier, he's hemmed in from all sides. He's fighting a multi-front battle, um, yeah. many of those caused by the previous administration. And he... he there's only so much one person can do anyway, except, though, <laughs> that seemed to get, have gotten turned on its head uh, from 2017 to 2021 as well, because it seemed like one person did an enormous amount of damage. However, what we're seeing is a massive shift in uh, the ability of this country to come together about anything. And I I think that that has to be one of the reasons the world is looking at us with such suspicion, because in the past, it always seemed that if you if you get an administration from the the other party, the biggest shifts are domestically. There may be different approaches to international relations, but you're not backing out of treaties that took a decade to forge. Uh, So we had the um, Paris Climate Accord, we backed out of that. Uh, the JCPOA, uh, the the Iran agreement, we agreement, backed yeah. out of that. Uh, and I think that more than anything, um, besides the fact that, you know, how could 62 and then 74 million people be so, um, I'm not really sure what the word is, uh, clueless or um, Vicious, I, I don't know how any how so many tens of millions of people could vote for somebody like Donald uh, that also uh, undermined our credibility. So how, how do we, in your view, get that back, given the given how and you're right, polarized is the wrong word. Um, fractured, I think, is a better word. Yeah, but it's a fracture. It's it's fractures driven almost exclusively by uh, one party that seems now to be an anti-democratic, counter-majoritarian, pro-autocracy party. Yeah, I mean, look, it's sadly, you know, as I was sitting thinking about this as you were speaking and laying it all out, it's really easy to be a bad actor. 
you know, we always talk about the image of a bull in a china shop, you know, so basically someone going and smashing everything up. But then, you know, the cleanup operation takes a whole team, right, a squad of people to go back in and then even try to pick glue pieces back together again. It's not taking a wrecking ball, you know, to a building and then, you know, construction and a reconstruction doing something else. I mean, basically takes, again, a team. And that's, that's where we are right now. I mean, it wasn't just... Um, President Trump. Uh, he was, you know, kind of, as I think we would all agree, um, uh, not the cause, but a symptom. But boy, Absolutely. did he go out there and, you know, destroy an awful lot and put everything through a stress test. And what we're going to have to do is really kind of figure out how we push back against that idea that you've given so much power to an individual in the presidency, because that's not inherent in the United States Constitution or, you know, kind of the whole way that this country was formed. This, uh, there wasn't a founding father. I mean, it, I mean, there was George Washington. There were founding fathers. We were always talk about with an S. Of course, it's rarely founding mothers, but which actually would be helpful there too. I mean, there was always when, some when Mrs. Just... Somebody or other somewhere around, you know. Mrs. Ben Franklin. Founding black there, people oh, would no. have been nice. <laughs> Founding Native Americans. Well, which was actually very much the case because, um, I mean, many of the ideas of confederation were built on ideas that uh, the settlers had observed about the confederation of uh, the Native American tribes of the time. So, you know, there were ideas of that in there. And, of course, you know, Native American um, history, when we look back, we think of the odd uh, great chief, but we also do think more about these tribal confederations, the groups of people, and the people who pull together because otherwise you couldn't survive the wilderness. And, you know, we're basically in a kind of political wilderness at the moment to stretch that one <laughs> I don't know how far we can take that one but I mean basically we need <laughs> to pull together and that's yeah. that's that's kind of what this is going to take so it takes you know people like you having a podcast speaking out you know it takes all of us getting out there engaging with people trying to kind of figure out not just how we analyze what happened in the past but how we move forward here and one of the things I was trying to do at the in the book which I suppose was a bit unusual you know after that typical you know Brookings policy person in analysis of, you know, kind of some of the things that Ayla's was come up with kind of a, uh, you know, a how-to or here's what you can do list at the end for, you know, all kinds of people thinking about how we could move things forward to reconnect with people, help create opportunity for people, and help take the edge off some of these grievances that have fed into the kind of politics that we have now. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so that's, I mean, basically we have to start thinking very quickly and very fast because we don't have a lot of time here about how we pull together. And it's maybe not going to happen at the top in Congress right now. Uh, there's this a lot of battle for uh, the House of Representatives where, you know, a lot of our Congress people seem to think that the other person is the enemy and the only thing you have to do is yell and scream at them all the time and not pass legislation. And certainly that you don't support the president because he's just, you know, like, I don't know, the, the quarterback for the opposing team and you just got to go and try and take him down and stop him to get, you know, from the you know the touchdown line or something i mean this is disastrous i mean we're all this is a team sport but we're all in this together we're all on the same side this is america and you know so how do we start doing it maybe from somewhere in the middle as well as from the bottom up yeah i'm not sure we all all are on the same side and that's that's one of the problems because it's very hard to say that uh well, that's, really why we have to, that's why we have to talk it through, you know, where, yeah. you know, conversations like this, you know, kind of just talking through where we are, figuring out how we reach out to people. I don't think everyone's going to be reconciled because, as you yeah. said, you know, before we've got, you know, millions of people who believe a big lie. 
yeah. that Donald Trump won the 2020 election, which he did not. And right. so, you know, there's going to be elements there of, you know, kind of figuring out how do you pull people away from a cult, you know, for example, or how do yeah. you figure out what it is exactly that was really motivating someone to, you know, to vote, not just for a charismatic, you know, personality, but was it issues? What issues were there? Can we tackle them in some way? We need to figure out who it is that we can talk to and, uh, you know, basically address their issues. And who, of course, will be pretty much irreconcilable, but how, you know, we still work with that uh, within the society. And we don't have a lot of time to do that, of course, you know, so. Right. And and that's a, that's something I, I really do want to talk to you about. And that was one of my favorite parts of your book. But you, you did me a favor. You One, you, you made the segue to your book and you also made the case for why you should start a podcast. So. <laughs> yes, it I, I mean, I'm here, really pleased everybody. you're doing it. Yeah, absolutely. Because I know, uh, <laughs> I know we've got loads of podcasts right now, but they are, and, and yours as well, is covering, you know, so many different issues that one person can't talk about, right? So we've no got way. to be out across the country, maybe like a, you know, podcast America, you know, basically yeah. putting people together for discussion. It's so much better than tweeting and, you know, a Facebook blog or something. You're having a yeah. proper interaction with people here. This is real. It, it is. And, and that is something that... Uh, the, the right has taken advantage of social media culture, our, our waning attention spans. You said goldfish. Yes, we're all goldfish now because, we, you know, nobody can think in excess of 280 characters. Yeah, I'm I think it's 280 sure. characters now. I yeah. just don't, I don't go on Twitter. I was just like, no way. <laughs> yeah, that. I'm ashamed to admit that I love Twitter. <laughs> it's genetic maybe, but I, I use it very, I use it for good. Um, but it does worry me. A little bit, uh, but you're right because the the real change is going to happen with substantive discussion and giving people as much access as possible to uh, diverse voices who are yeah. all on the same side. You know, as as I we were speaking about earlier before we started, um, so many of us. Uh, have become one issue voters. We're voting for democracy. We're voting for the survival of democracy. But we are coming at it from very different points of view, very different right. kinds of expertise. And uh, the more that can happen, the better. So now that I think I've convinced you to start a podcast, I want to talk <laughs> about your book. Um, I. I'm not, I, I don't really know how to articulate the, why, but your book resonated with me so much, uh, especially the biographical stuff, which doesn't make any sense because I grew up in Jamaica, Queens. Um, maybe it's because my grandmother grew up in uh, the Outer Hebrides. Yeah, I so, mean, she grew up in literally the middle of nowhere, not just, you know, kind of landlocked, but in the middle of uh, nowhere in ferocious yeah. seas, you know, a place that was you know, extraordinarily difficult to get to and the ultimate hard scrabble background. I mean, I've, I've read about her and it's incredible, uh, you know, her journey from literally, you know, one of the most remote places um, in the world. Um, perhaps not quite. It wasn't quite Easter Island or something like this. But it, you know, <laughs> well, when, you, when you're in the Great Britain, that's uh, really way out there, all the way the to 19-teens? where she ended up in the US. Exactly. That it is was, an amazing journey. Amazing and journey. It, and it's tiny. Um, yeah. You know, there are more, many more sheep than people. So, uh, I've been there. It's extraordinarily beautiful. But uh, the entire time I was there, I was trying to imagine what it would have been like growing up there. And she was born in 1912. Yeah, and I couldn't do it. I just, like my imagination completely failed me, um, and I think 
obviously, uh, growing up in northeastern England in the 80s and uh, and the Isle of Lewis in the early 20th century are very different things. However, I, I think one of one of the reasons um, your story, I found it moving um, in this particular way, was that in you know you and my grandmother both had to escape circumstances. Right. Like if you were going to fulfill um, your dreams, your ambitions, what have you, you needed to leave. And uh, you know, I think my grandmother. Obviously, I don't. I don't think she had the kind of support uh, or the same kinds of ambition, certainly. But she made that very difficult choice, and at a very young age, got on a ship yeah. to cross the Atlantic to come to New York. Um, the difference, though, is is in what you did with the opportunity. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to talk about what my grandmother did, other than squander it and, and give us Donald. Um, but you. You really uh, put in the work and created a career that made um, made a difference. Continues to make a difference. Um, so I'm I'm wondering, first of all, how that was managed when you were. Oh, and by the way, I, you you said that when you were 13, you were in Tubingen. Yeah, um, I, I was. At, <laughs> I went to not at the same. We are the same age. Um, yeah. I, I spent a, a semester or so there uh, when I was a junior oh, in college. Oh, that's fantastic. And I went to Tufts. Wow, uh, yes, and there we was were very a, close. We were sort of circling around each other there. We were. <laughs> and there was a very brief moment when I was thought of studying at the Fletcher School, which is better than the Kennedy's. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It's <laughs> and then I came place. to Yeah, it, it's a good place. Um, but I came to my senses and realized I wanted to be an English major. So anyway... Um, so, so yeah, so there are these points of correspondence that are really interesting, and then there are these points of enormous difference. Um, how did you, first of all, I, I am curious, how at 13 did you end up at Tübingen? Well, this was, um, uh, you know, one of these um, great things that my local uh, education authority, my local government, County Durham in the northeast of England, um, you know, really managed to preserve despite all of the economic downturn. Uh, they um, still invested, even though, you know, the tax base had been slashed with mass unemployment with all the coal mines closing down and the steelworks and shipyards and, you know, rail works in, in the northeast, which had been dominating um, all of the economy before. They kind of somehow managed to carve out this budget, you know, meagre as it was for uh, cultural and educational uh, activities for, for the kids growing up there. So I had a fully paid um, school exchange. I mean, it was host families and, you know, there wasn't a lot of expense involved and the schools, you know, were state schools, they weren't private schools, you know, kind of like basically took us um, all in. But, you know, there I was on this this county-wide, region-wide um, exchange programme and it was just amazing. I mean, it really opened up my eyes and... That was what got me really interested then in foreign affairs. You know, 13, it was, you know, kind of 1978, you know, so it was kind of, you know, it was a different time. It's really, you know, right there in the Cold War. Um, all of the people that I met there had these stories from World War II, which were astounding. You know, I hadn't really thought about 
um, you know, I had a very superficial understanding of World War II at the time, as well as half at 13. And Hopefully. some of these real human beings, you know, real live Germans who'd had their own experiences. And my host family, they'd been kids, they'd been in the firebombing of Frankfurt, and I didn't, I'd never even heard of that, you know. So I started looking this up, and, you know, when the Allied planes uh, dropped in sundry devices on it, they'd, they'd told these terrible stories of watching people being incinerated in front of them as kids. And I thought, God, that's terrifying. And, you know, kind of uh, Baden-Württemberg, the southern parts of Germany, Germany, where Tübingen is, is right next to Bavaria, which of course was the hotbed of Nazism. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'd go to these um, beer gardens with the family. Uh, I didn't get to drink the beer, but I could watch all these other guys. And it was just like something out of some old movie and, you know, with the big umpar bands, you know, the tubers and things playing. And I thought, and yet I'd have these really crazy conversations with people who clearly felt really terrible about what had happened and they were trying to move on the path of reconciliation. That was what these exchanges were all about. Because this is only 20 years, you know, 30 years or so, you know, since the end of the war. But it's, it's right when Britain joins... Uh, the European Union, of course, now Britain's out of it. It was this whole time when the Europe was trying to build itself, you know, back uh, together again. And this is just a, it was a fascinating time, and it just got me hooked on being abroad. I mean, Tübingen was beautiful. Um, it is not it's quite so much like the north of England. <laughs> so, you know, it got me, it got me on this path. And what specifically got you interested in? Uh, well, I guess the Soviet Union at that time, um, and led to your career essentially focusing there and then well, on I'm, Russia. Ironically enough, and I mean, I talk about this in the book as well, I mean, one of the things that um, President Trump, uh, you know, our uncle um, used to talk about that resonated with me was the catastrophe that would befall us all if we had a nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union and then with Russia. Because in the 1980s, um, obviously I went about it a bit of a different way, let's just say, <laughs> in trying to kind of address this concern. But in the 1980s, you know, 1983, again, you would remember this as well, um, we had a war scare uh, with the Soviet Union. Uh, this is you know, the whole period where the United States was placing Pershing missiles in Europe and the Soviet Union uh, was placing SS-20 missiles. I mean, you know, you and I would probably remember that. And I, I would, mm-hmm. of course, never have recognised an SS-20 from a Pershing missile, but I remember the names of all of these, you know, as a teenager. And we had the campaign for nuclear disarmament. We had um, all of the peace marches all the way across Europe because we were convinced that uh, basically the United States and the Soviet Union were going to get into a big war and we would be blown up, we'd be ground zero. I used to have this poster on my bedroom wall of Gone with the Wind, which was Ronald Reagan decked out in his cowboy outfit, holding Margaret Thatcher was dressed, you know, superimposed onto Scarlett O'Hara. And it was basically something like, he said he would take her to the ends of the world, world and he did. And then it would have this, like, playlist, and it'd have all of the, you know, the key US players, you know, like Cyrus Vance and all this down there. And we were all just convinced that this was disaster, nightmare. It was like, you know, today, yeah. with the Europeans going... They're at it again. Russia and the United States, they're going to put us back into war. And, you know, I, I thought to myself in, you know, 1983 after this, well, wow, God, we're, that's it. I mean, we're all doomed. Nuclear winter, Armageddon, you know, it's the end of times. And one of my um, dad's older cousins, we used to call Uncle Charlie, He'd been during World War Two in the convoys uh, for the Merchant Marine that took all the supplies to the Soviet Union during World War Two. The Canadians and Americans and the Brits were always doing this to supply the Soviet Union when it was our ally. And he couldn't get it. He kept saying, why was it that we went from being wartime allies to, you know, basically on the verge of, he said, bloody well blowing each other up. What happened? And he said to my dad one day, you know, Fiona's been 
studying languages. She'd done French and German. She should go and study Russian and figure it all out. And I thought, yeah, I should. I'll go and study Russian. And I thought I'd sit around like we are now with headphones on, you know, probably listening to intercepts or something or being an interpreter at the United Nations, maybe, you know, kind of interpreting things and just doing my little bit. I never thought I would end up where I did. And it, of course, um, you know, President Trump, your Uncle Donald, he was obsessed with nuclear weapons as well. I mean, he was obsessed with that catastrophe. I mean, he must have, of course, that being shaped by the Cuban Missile Crisis, but the war scare was real. It really was real. The 1980s. Oh, he's been obsessed with them for decades. It's yeah. It's kind so, of the, so the thing is, I got it because you know I understood that I used to have nightmares, like you know most other yep. kids living mm-hmm. in Europe at that time, and you know that idea, that impulse to sort of figure out if you could have a deal with the Russians on nuclear uh, weapons. Of course, Gorbachev and Reagan did that, and George H. W. Bush. We've always been trying to figure that out, and I think that's the great tragedy of his presidency that he was actually interested in that. And if he'd done things a bit differently, there is just a chance that he could have put us on a path towards some kind of um, negotiated arms control. But, of course, yeah, the rest is yeah. history. It did not happen, but I think he actually wanted it. I mean, I heard him say it enough times and I and I got where he was coming from. And, in fact, a lot of Europeans did too. Um, Chancellor Merkel of Germany had a conversation with him about it because she was on the other side of the Berlin Wall at the time <laughs> during the war right. scare, also protesting. And as she said, she would have been blown up too. <laughs> Right. So we were all in there thinking, yeah, we've got to do something. But we didn't. We didn't get it worked out. I mean, he was characterologically incapable of that kind of work, I think, um, which is tragic. Um, But, you know, when you're speaking about it, because I, 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 this is not my field of study, I don't, I haven't thought about it that much. Obviously, when I read your book, I did. And it's, really vivid, vivid memory uh, now that we're talking about it. It was, um, it was almost overwhelming. And it, it, yeah. it, uh, it definitely, it touched on everything. Um, when, when I was a freshman, there, we had a, a courses we could take that didn't count for anything. And, and I, one of the courses I took was about the Soviet Union and what was going on and, and uh, escalation and all that. And I wasn't, I hadn't even been interested in it beforehand. Um, but it was so real and urgent that I think we all, um, felt the need to pay attention to it. Uh, and yes, you guys were in the middle I don't think yeah, we, we were. And I mean, that's kind of what's happening again now. I think this is why, you know, the, there is still that, um, you know, difference of perspective between, you know, the US and, you know, European allies over uh, Russia, you know, as it was in the Soviet period. And everyone in Europe thinks they're ground zero for any kind of conflict. And of course, they just like to soothe themselves by thinking it's not going to happen or make it go away. And sometimes that leads to wanting the United States to go away as well. I mean, a lot of the protests that were um, against nuclear war were really about getting the United States to pull out. You know, so that, and I think yeah. that's happening again now. I mean, what Putin is hoping to do by creating another Euro missile type crisis, and it went on from 77 to 87 until Reagan and Gorbachev in October of 87 signed the INF uh, treaty. I mean, basically, the, uh, at the end of um, uh, the Trump administration, Putin was really warning people that, look, you know, if we don't get a new agreement, because the United States pulled out of INF because the Russians kept violating it, 
we could be back to the Euro missile crisis again. And he meant the atmosphere of, you know, basically me stirring up trouble in Europe, you know, kind of is basically what he was warning us of. And here he is. And I mean, yeah. they're moving forces around, but they are also threatening about missile placements. And they've talked about moving, you know, cruise missiles to Venezuela and Cuba, you know, kind of taking it bigger. And they're giving uh, people in Europe that same kind of anxiety and stress again. Oh, here we are. We're going to go back again. It's going to have a major war in Europe. And it might not be nuclear, but gosh, you know, maybe that might trigger that off and there's going to be refugees and look the whole of the post-world war ii history in europe has been of avoiding it again and yes we've had yugoslavia and there was you know the turks moving into cyprus and all kinds of things have happened but that idea of a massive great continental war and ukraine is a huge country i mean territorially yeah uh, they'd rather kind of basically say well population as well 45 million a lot of europeans would say oh no, no it's not here let's just push that away and pretend it's not happening and hope it's not happening and you know get the united states to not rattle you know russia's chain and you know we're back there into that uh, set of discussions and the whole framing that we had back in the 80s it, it's incredible and i also it also gets as we said at the beginning, you know, deja vu all over again, you know, yeah. Reagan, Thatcher, uh, Donald, Boris Johnson. It just, it feels in some ways. They've all got the same hairstyle apart from Ronald Reagan. The I hope same you hairstyle. It's, <laughs> but it's, like, it's like Reagan. <laughs> Boris Johnson. Yeah. My, uh, My grandmother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's like, a, yeah. it's, it, was, it was an 80s do, wasn't it? You know, it's like a it, special. It was. And apparently poof, it has staying power. Do. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So it just it in some ways and obviously in different contexts it it feels like Reagan Thatcher just stupider, um, <laughs> and yet the same I think the the many of the problems that were created by those two and uh, I I was the first election I voted in was uh, Reagan Dukakis I think oh wow um, yeah yeah. And of course, I voted for Dukakis, um, who lost kind of badly. Yeah. Um, and Russia aside, um, or I guess then the Soviet Union aside, what those two did to devastate the economies, uh, or, or I should say the middle working classes of, of two entire countries, still, we're, we're still paying the price for that. We um, absolutely are, yeah. And Donald and Boris Johnson um, are playing from the same deck, uh, or Donald was playing from the same deck, and we just not we never seem to get out from under uh, these completely. Well, I don't know if they're misguided economic ideas because the idea is to to make rich people richer. So I guess in that way they're quite effective. Um, but I was I was very taken with your description, not, not just of what the very real cost to your family and where you lived and your neighbors, but also um, how it just uh, entrenched the, the class divide right. in Britain, which, and then your experience coming over here, where that kind of disappears uh, in certain contexts. Not across yeah. the board, but yeah. clearly class is not the same issue here as it is in Great Britain. But then you had the eye-opening experience of what race meant here. That's right, yeah. Can you and talk think, a little bit about that? Because I don't think Americans understand how bizarre it is 
uh, to other people who don't have the same kind of racial inequality and inherent racism that the United States does? Well, look, I mean, in the United Kingdom, I mean, there obviously are racial divides as well, and it's a little bit complex um, Mm -hmm. because... Um, who started the slave trade to the United States. That might be Great Britain. (laughs) Might be. It was. Back in the day, yes, exactly, when the United States was a colony and, you know, the whole Middle Passage from Africa, you know, through to the United States and the Atlantic slave trade all went through British ports and there were an awful lot of them. Even the Crown, you Mm -hmm. know, the the royal family were involved in it. Some of this was under royal licence, you know, particularly when it went to the Caribbean, you know, for example. So there was a lot of British involvement, but really it was exporting the issue. You know, slavery in the UK never really took hold. There was indentured servants and, you know, kind of some of them were also sent um, over to, you know, the various colonies, but abolition was pretty quick. And uh, so just a whole kind of different feel to things, even though, of course, there was this larger participation. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I was growing up in the UK, large swathes of the United Kingdom had almost no immigrants in at all. I mean, you have the constituent peoples of the UK, people keep... Forgetting that ethnicity is a big deal. I mean, you talked about your grandmother was yep. Scottish. She wasn't English, she was Scottish. She was very Scottish. And in fact, she spoke Gaelic, right, as I understand. Yep, she grew up speaking Gaelic. So that was her, yeah. I mean, English was taught as well, but Gaelic would have been her language at home. And it was the language of the highlands and the islands. Um, it still Scotland. is. When I visited exactly. my, my dad's cousins who still live there, uh, yep. that... When they weren't speaking English to me, they were speaking Gaelic. Exactly. I mean, you know, when you get out to, you know, what we call the Celtic fringe in some, you know, circles also in um, Wales and Ireland uh, and elsewhere, I mean, people still speak the language. But, you know, most of Scotland, the vast majority of people are speaking English, um, albeit with a dialect and, you know, kind of... uh, things have obviously uh, shifted there. But it was really people, when I was growing up, well aware of their ethnicity, um, whether they were English, Irish, Scottish, you know, Welsh or traveller, uh, which is Irish mm-hmm. travellers and Roma uh, gypsy uh, travellers sure. as well. And, of course, this was also the time of troubles um, in Northern Ireland and it spilled over into the mainland and, uh, of course, the um, inter-communal violence of uh, uh, Irish Catholic nationalists and the sort of Ulster Scots Irish, you know, Protestants in Belfast and, you know, around the whole of uh, the Northern Ireland. You know, so that's just, it was a, a period of really acute awareness of kind of sometimes who you were in those contexts. But race was somewhere happening in great big cities. Uh, because you'd had after World War One somewhat of an immigration, um, and then uh, especially after World War Two and with the kind of collapse of the British Empire, uh, that's when sort of slavery came back in again, uh, in a way from the uh, uh, the former slaves, the descendants of slaves from the Caribbean and other you know colonies where the uh, slave trade had uh, really taken root, but then also coming from Africa, um, you know from colonies, but not uh, those that had uh, that had been dominated by. Um, certainly the imposition of, of slavery and then from India and Pakistan, Bangladesh, for example. But this was all happening in big cities because nobody would move to the northeast of England to coal mines in a place where there was mass unemployment. You know, so we no. were kind of in a in a in a bubble. And mm-hmm. all of the kind of things that I experienced were really related to that kind of setting, even though I was sort of watching the uh, a bubbling, let's just say, of some of the racial issues in uh, the UK uh, elsewhere on television and things. But I came to the US, I was so shocked. I couldn't believe it. I thought there'd been the civil rights movement. You know, I'd watched a lot of, you know, kind of American film and culture, and I just was not expecting that race relations were essentially, you know, how I'd been reading about in some context, you know, back in the day of Jim Crow and segregation. And I, and I say in the book that, you know, I came to Boston, you know, thinking more and worrying about 
the um, intercommunal Irish feuding, uh, you know, that I'd kind of stepped myself back into, you know, the troubles. I mean, this is the time when um, the IRA were, you know, hanging out in Boston and, you know, shipping guns uh, to um, Northern Ireland, you know, for example. And I find that I'm actually at the at the very end of this whole long period of the desegregation of Boston public schools and busing of kids, you know, across Boston. And it's been violent, it's been, uh, you know, resisted and the race relations are on a knife edge and I had no clue. And it's just this sudden understanding that, wow, there's something here happening in the United States. And every single, you know, European other who comes from some other uh, context is shocked by what they encounter. And it has not uh, changed in the ways that one would hope um, it would have done over all this time that I've been since 1989. I mean, you know, here we are, you know, in the past summer and more, the Black Lives Matter movement, we're still debating all of this. And what really strikes me uh, which is, you know, quite different from um, in the UK context, um, in which I grew up and some of the things that I've experienced later, is the way that that kind of sense of economic com- commonality, the kind of working class, blue collar, you know, low socioeconomic uh, income bracket has been divided up racially as well. Because it's the case, no matter who you are, what you look like, you know, there's a lot of working poor out there, and they could be Hispanic, they could be, you know, any um, immigrant uh, that's coming, they could be white, you know, from multiple generations in uh, deindustrialized, uh, left behind regions or black. And that kind of sense of solidarity on those bases has been um, completely torn apart. And of course, yeah, that, you, is, you... that is a direct uh, result of, you know, these the whole racial divides that emerge in the United States. Yeah, you were you refer to that in your book. In fact, I, you're referring to Isabel Wilkerson's yeah, phenomenal cast. book, yeah. Cast, and her, in my opinion, even more extraordinary book, uh, The Warmth of Other Suns, which yeah, preceded it. Absolutely, um, is that th- this is something that has been going on in this country before it was a country, right. because um, white, rich landowning enslavers understood that. Uh, the biggest danger to them would be if white and black uh, laborers joined together. So and which they did at different points. They um, did. When you think in some of the coal fields, you know, West Virginia, the, the Battle of Blair Mountain and some of the, you know, historic labor movements, they absolutely mm-hmm. did. And in the British context, I mean, there's a lot of people who've been writing about this. There's a, a wonderful British writer and historian called David Olasoga, who's pretty much our age. He grew up in public housing in the northeast of England. His mother was white working class, as he describes it, and his father was an immigrant from Nigeria. And he says he's black and British, and that's the title of his book and it basically talks about how you can have both of those identities at the same time and there's a lot of commonality because class you know in the UK can be melded together there is of course racial differences not racial discrimination but class um, and uh, you know discrimination on the base of class and region and regional accent and that experience of having those uh, lives on the margins um, of the poverty line that's the same and in the United States, I was surprised to see that people couldn't see that. But, I mean, I understand why, of course, because I've done, you know, all the same readings as everyone else. I've been observing this, you know, for all the time that I've been in here. But we have to kind of figure out how we can have cross-racial coalitions to address this because we're not going to address a lot of the socioeconomic grievances unless we can get people to work together. And I know, again, right. you know, there are a lot of books saying, well, a lot of it's because there's, you know, inherent racism, you know, in um, working-class white society. But I, I, I don't buy that as, a, as sufficient as an explanation across the board. I think it's because it is imposed from the top because people not wanting to see more of a sort of solidarity across the labour movement and, you know, elsewhere. 
uh, and, right. and pushing back. And that's been my direct experience in, in many settings. Yeah, I mean, first of all, there's no such thing as inherent racism because there's no such thing as race. It's a completely exactly. a construct. construct. Exactly. And, and I want to... My uh, first thought um, when I, I learned that I was going to get to talk to you was I need you to come three times because... I wanted, I wanted to devote an entire show to each section of your book. Um, and then Russia escalation. Yeah, and Ukraine Mr. Putin messing about so, all okay. over the place. Yeah. So, yeah, so that plan got thrown out the window because there's a lot to cover. However, um, and I don't, I, I'm assuming I can't keep you here forever. <laughs> so. well, I'm okay, but I mean, you also have to kind of make this a proper, you know, kind of podcast that people are going to listen to, you know, like not for days, the serialization <laughs> podcast. Um, I do want to end, though, um, with a discussion, a brief one, of how you end your book. Because um, one of the the biggest challenges we face right now is despair. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Things are so bad on so many levels. And um, I, I think the the greatest thing we have to fear is hopelessness. Uh, You know, I've spoken to people who are already conceding that we're going to lose in November, and we cannot think like this. Um, However, it's also hard sometimes to think of um, things to give people to hang on to, and that's why I so appreciated the way you end your book. Um, In fact, I love this. You, You said it's not... It, instead of build back better, which I hate, by the way, I hate that, um, you suggest building forward together. And I love that uh, because it's proactive, it's forward thinking, it's uh, uniting. Um, and then, you know, you, you, you talk about the cultural despair that we're all facing and, and, um, and the context in which we need to rethink things. Uh, so could you, you know, I, I like to ask people what gives you hope, but I think you lay out for us things that can give all of us hope. You talk about uh, a common purpose and breaking down racial barriers, edu- the importance of education. So if you could just maybe, yeah. I know this is a hard ask, but if you could sum up for us um, your approach and um, your thoughts about how... Um, the feasibility of doing these things and and maybe ways in which each of us as individuals can do our part. Yeah, look, I mean, one of the things that, uh, you know, I suppose probably got to me the most during the last four years was how obsessed we were about, you know, one guy in the White House. And the preamble to the Constitution, I had to study this when I took my oath of citizenship, you know, starts with we the people, not I the president. You know, so, and we the people was put into the preamble of the Constitution, as I learned from my crash course in civics <laughs> to become a citizen by none other than James Wilson, another Scot, who, like your grandmother, you know, kind of came That's over, right. you know, from Scotland <laughs> to, to the, um, right. uh, you know, United States in search of opportunity way back when. And, you know, the whole idea was, you know, kind of it's people power. Again, it's the fathers, uh, the founding fathers, not just the father, the one person. And it was, you know, what did everybody do together? P- further on the preamble, you have this whole idea of um, not just to make a more perfect union, but to do things in terms of the general welfare. Well, welfare wasn't, you know, kind of getting the hand out of the state. It was right. working together, pulling together for your broader well-being. 
And this is the kind of environment that I grew up in the northeast of England and all of the deindustrialization and everything you know that happened took away the ability for people to look out for each other and do things for themselves because suddenly no one had a job. It's a bit hard to do things when you haven't got a job and you haven't got any money and you can't really help everybody else out. And so, you know, we are in now that state in the United States, with, uh, we haven't got out of COVID yet, but please, fingers crossed that we might be. We've had all of these terrible things happening and we're still obsessed about one guy or not one guy being in the uh, the White House. And, you know, we all have agency. We are we the people here. And we've got things that we can do. And sometimes we can do this on a small level. Sometimes we can do it on a much bigger level. You know, you can go out and talk to people. You can go and tell people, you know, as you're doing, about the things that you know and you've seen and try to kind of push back on some of the lies and, you know, clarifying things to people. But we can also go out and also help, you know, people who are really close to us and, and in the book because of education and because of this interest about an opportunity, I give a kind of a list of things that you can do as a teacher, you know, kind of figuring out how, you know, for example, your students just sometimes need access to information they might not have you know parental guidance at home or they might not have any mentors you can connect them with people you can make sure they've got the resources you know you can be a young person and you can be a mentor to people no matter how old you are or where you are in the education ladder the career ladder you can reach out to a peer you know somebody who is less advantaged than you are you know you can be the ceo of a company or even you know somebody who's a hiring manager and you can bust through those barriers you know you can take a chance on somebody who doesn't look like you or sound like you somebody who comes from a different background didn't go to the same university as you did you know the the kinds of things that uh, Mackenzie Scott uh, Jeff Bezos's wife was doing spreading billions of dollars I wish I could do that you know around yeah. to you know kind of the the schools and colleges and vocational schools that really kind of help regular people who don't have resources and connections uh, to you know uh, find jobs get skills that they need not just elite institutions you know we can't have everybody giving giving it to the, their Ivy League institution how about getting out there to vocational schools or to trade schools or you know your local community college and then you know basically if you're older you know I'm getting there now, you know, can we go and, you know, um, mentor people. Libraries are just such an amazing place where you can go and get all kinds of advice. And when I was a kid growing up, there was a Citizens Advice Bureau that was like a, a person, you know, could probably, they were actually my age, you know, some old biddy, I think, at the time, but it was actually probably You some, probably thought she was 90. I know, she was probably a 50-year-old, you know, woman like me, you know, letting your hair go grey, just sort of sitting there. And, you know, they'd had some, you know, career in the past and they could help you get advice. They, they, it would be anything from... Some Somebody coming in saying they didn't know how to get help with paying their electricity bill or, um, you know, they were looking for, you know, maybe some legal issue that they were having a problem with that, you know, they'd got behind on their rent and, you know, what did they do? Or, you know, they wanted to find, you know, something for their kids to do, you know, an after school programme. And they'd sit there and they'd help figure it out because they'd have all the library resources. I mean, now we've got the internet, but you still, you know, can go in there and people will help you do this. So my, my point in the book is that's how we build back the civic fabric of our country. We do things for each other to help each other out we've got to build that up and you know right now we're so obsessed again not just with the person who gets in the white house but everybody in congress you know can they actually pass these bloody build back better bills well we can actually start to do some of these things at the local and community level as well people can go out there and pool resources and get some things done and people already are so how do you you know connect the dots so i was just really basically trying to challenge myself as much as you know anything else and others and just say come on we can get out there roll up our sleeves and do it um, because otherwise, as as you say, we're going to be there's going to be no hope. We can create hope. Yeah, and and we can empower ourselves. 
We can. Uh, we can say, yeah, of, we can do it. You know? <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, I have, I, I hate, to, I don't like to say it was a pleasure because it was really dark, heavy stuff, but it was such a pleasure. I, I learned so much from you. Um, every time I hear you speak, I learn more from you. I, I am so impressed with your approach to things, your, the way in which you're measured, uh, and yet very clear about the urgency, but without being alarmist. Um, so I'm deeply grateful that you came on today and I am once again, please, everybody (laughs) read this book. It's a phenomenal book. It's incredibly well-written. It's a beautiful story. Uh, it's, it's ultimately very American, uh, story. So Fiona Hill, thank you again so much for being here. Oh, well, thank you. Honestly, this has been a pleasure. I mean, it's just uh, been great to meet you. And uh, please keep on doing this uh, with the podcasts and your books as well. This is uh, really you making too. a contribution. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> thank you. Now we come to one of my favorite parts of the show when I get to answer your questions. If you have any, please send me an email at all one word, the Mary Trump show at politicon.com, and I'll get to as many as I can. First, we have a question from Lisa in Ashburn, Virginia. What is the likelihood of having a third party? The moderate Republicans need a place to go. Should Democrats focus more of their messaging on them? No. <laughs> That's my short answer. Um, you know, it seems that Democrats are always the ones who were expected to find a middle ground, to make concessions. And I got to tell you, I'm really sick of it. Moderate Republicans are part of the reason we're in this mess. Um, a lot of them voted for Donald in uh, 2016 or didn't vote at all because they truly claim to believe that Hillary Clinton was just as bad. Uh, So I don't really feel the need to appease them. If the Republican Party doesn't have a place for them, that's not the Democrats' fault. The Democrats won by an enormous margin this time around, uh, at least in terms of the presidential race, um, by almost 8 million votes. That's what they call a mandate. And uh, unfortunately, you know, we have an evenly split Senate with two Democrats who uh, don't seem willing to stick with their party uh, all the time. But we do still have the majority in the House and uh, in the Senate, and we have the White House. There is no reason to concede anything because the truth of the matter is progressives aren't the problem. The problem uh, is almost entirely on the right. And last I checked, most of the policies that Democrats are advocating for, that President Biden is advocating for, are approved of by vast majorities of the American people. I think a third party is not a good idea also because it would, uh, I think it would increase the likelihood that uh, the next Republican candidate for president would win because I think instead of drawing people from the Republican base, it would draw um, 
voters uh, who would otherwise have voted for the Democrat. Uh, from Pam in Melbourne, Australia. <clears throat> Re Dino, meaning Democrat in name only, Joe Manchin, it's clear to me that he has an obstructionist stance to the Biden Build Back Better agenda and seems determined to undermine the Dems, ingratiate himself with the Republicans, and in doing so, disregard the needs of so many West Virginians. Given this, how can he be removed from his position? Uh, he can get voted out of office. Unfortunately, in West Virginia, I, I, I truly believe he's the only Democrat who could win in West Virginia. Um, I think there's also a good possibility that he'll, he'll become a Republican and run as a Republican, and he would also win in West Virginia. I don't think Democrats have a shot at a Senate seat in West Virginia. I think Donald won the state with something like 70% of the electorate. So, um, you know... Um, unfortunately, well, I don't know if unfortunately, I guess, um, Joe Manchin is a Democrat. And even though he's made some egregious mistakes and done some horrible things, he did vote for a lot of the Democratic legislation that would not have passed without his vote, uh, considering the in entirely united obstructionism of the Republicans in the Senate. Last question is from Cam. The media have overplayed the both sideism. They're overly demonstrating they're not liberal, but I really think that they have sided with authoritarianism. I don't know why we aren't seeing that. Why do you think the news continually avoids the point of the matter at hand? If you disagree, can you offer me any hope? There's actually a related question from Corey in New York City uh, that I thought I'd answer at the same time. Corey asked if I have any favorite journalists and if I recommend any to listen to or watch. Um, so, yeah, I agree. The media uh, has overplayed the both sidism. Right now we're in a situation in which one party is pro-democratic and one party is not. Uh, so to give the Republicans the same amount of uh, airtime without pushback is to allow them to push an anti-democratic agenda. And it's very, very dangerous. And this is after f four years during which the media were attacked on an almost daily basis. Their lives were put in danger because of the, of the rhetoric coming out of the White House. So it continues to amaze me that they haven't learned any lessons. As far as I'm concerned, the media should always be neutral as to the fact, but they should be pro-democracy. That's not being biased. That's, that's just protecting the context in which the fourth estate can exist. So... Um, I don't really know why I, well, I, I think part of it is uh, that corporate media uh, are definitely uh, on the conservative side. They're pro making money. They're pro uh, getting clicks and getting ratings. And they know that um, there's some things that consistently get the ratings that they want. And one of them for reasons that I find really hard to fathom is Donald. And uh, the other one is um, playing up the horse race. You know, they're not so in, so much interested in, in giving us substance as they are in making it always seem like there's a winner and a loser. 
uh, for example, the way the the vote in the Senate was portrayed when Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema voted against modifying the filibuster to allow uh, the vote on the Voting Rights Acts uh, was portrayed as a loss for Democrats. It was not a loss for Democrats. First of all, 96% of Democrats in the Senate voted for it. The Democratic president pushed for it. Uh, this wasn't a progressive versus moderate issue. Uh, this was a loss for democracy. It was a loss for every single American. Uh, so they really do need to do a better job. I'm not entirely sure uh, what we can do in the short term. In the long term, absolutely, we need we need local news. I spoke about this with Brian Karam last week. We need to support and um, subsidize local reporting uh, because that is the foundation of how people get informed in this country, or it used to be. So that's that's extremely important. We also need to get people better access to independent media. So some some websites, uh, some on, online journals, I would recommend are Josh Marshall's Talking Points Memo, uh, Mother Jones. Uh, David Korn is a, an excellent reporter over there. And um, let's see, podcasts actually are also a really good way to get information. Obviously, uh, a lot of podcasts, including this one, have, have a, a decided point of view. But um, the really good ones have their facts right. So... Uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is excellent. Um, Sisters-in-Law is an excellent podcast. Molly Junkfast's The New Abnormal is something that I listen to uh, often. Deep State Radio, David Rothkopf's podcast is excellent. Um, I could go on. So there, there is plenty of material that's out there and accessible and plenty of places to find it. So that would be my short-term solution. But we definitely need some seriously serious overall of uh, the profession of journalism down the road and, and uh, particularly of our news media. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Mary Trump show with me, Mary Trump, and some of my favorite guests at the intersection of politics, activism, and culture. Please send me your questions to the Mary Trump Show, all one word, at politicon.com, and I will do my best to answer them in the next episode. Please also follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and give us five stars because it really helps people find the show. Thank you again for watching and listening. I will see you next week. Stay safe. <laughs>